You're listening to Medically Unbiased. Unbiased. Offering an unbiased discussion about all things medical. See? An unbiased opinion. Medically speaking? Yeah. Medically Unbiased. back to another great episode of COVID-19 nonsense. Well, it's not really nonsense. Uh, there's some nonsense for sure. However, the, the disease itself is not nonsense. And that's what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that the response, the response from hospitals is nonsense. Welcome to Medically Unbiased. where you are going to get an unbiased discussion about Everything in the medical community, what's happening, what we're doing today, what real nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners do, what is happening. Um, And we're going to look at the data, look at the facts and not look at the crazy. So we might talk about the crazy, but we're going to assess it. We're going to look at it from an unbiased perspective and actually determine that It's either not crazy and it's realistic or it's just outright crazy. With that being said, let's start um, at where most nurses right now, how they feel. And I say most nurses. I haven't spoken to most nurses. We know there's hundreds of thousands of nurses in the country. I could not have spoken to most of them. So I'm making a wide assumption. But the data that's out there and friends of mine have shown that nurses are not being treated the way I feel or that they feel they should be treated. Hospitals alone, and there's a hospital in New Jersey or an article from New Jersey about four nurses in a hospital there, um, Jersey City Medical Center, that it was highlighting exactly how nurses are responding. And this was in the NewJersey.com um, website. And it talks about Nurses calling themselves disposable, feeling abandoned. Um, So these nurses went on the record and talked about how they feel like the the staff um, cares about them. Their other nurses care, but the management staff doesn't care. They are disposable. Um, They're forced to use PTO. They've been denied hazard pay. They've been denied sick pay because the hospital says, well, how do you prove you got sick just by taking care of a COVID patient? They've refused them N95 masks. They've refused them proper PPE. Um, The list goes on and on and on. Now, these four nurses, they did not want to put their names out there because they're afraid of losing their job. Well, I got news for you. You four nurses, you should quit. If that's how you're being treated, you should quit. Um, And the vast majority of your colleagues should quit. Uh, We do not deserve to be treated like that by anybody. Um, We wouldn't take it from a patient yelling at you and treating you that way. You wouldn't take it from your husband or wife. You wouldn't take it from your kids. You wouldn't take it from anybody. So why are you taking it from your boss? Just because they cough up some money and pay the bills? And it's not very cool. I don't think that's fair. I think that's absolutely unrealistic. I think we as nurses need to change the narrative. We need to be saying something that 
you know, the rest of society has not heard from us. We're always kind and the nice nurses and, you know, we're the most respected profession and we're really cared for and we care for other people. It's time we start caring for ourselves. And what does that look like? It can be evil, it can be nice, but we need to care for ourselves. And caring for ourselves and advocating for ourselves allows us to care for and advocate for our patients. We are horrible at advocating for ourselves across the board. Doesn't matter who you know or who you talk to. We don't sleep well. We work too many hours. We don't, you know, take enough vacation. Hell, if we could even get vacation because Kathy probably has vacation that day and she's got seniority and she won't, so they can't have enough people off for whatever. The point is that we do not take care of ourselves well enough and we need to start, and it's going to start now. I believe in my heart of hearts that nurses across the country are about to make a drastic change. We need to be in charge of running this stuff. If we're the caring party and we're the people who actually care about patients and care about family members and care about other nurses, we need to have a voice. The CNO, we keep saying there's a CNO. They're executives. They've forgotten what it's like to be at the bedside. They've went the executive route. They no longer care. They couldn't titrate a drip to save their life. Okay, some of them can still. Some of them are amazing. Some of the CNOs have actually went out on the floors and helped and talked to people. But that's a rare occasion. Let's talk about the, what, 4,000 hospitals or whatever there are nationwide. And a couple of the CNOs have shown up. Uh, to actually do something. So, yeah, that says a lot about the executive management from the hospital. They're not even there. Now, all these hospitals that are having problems and that aren't, they don't have enough PPE, I have a solution, and I don't know why this wasn't thought of before. Uh, I was talking with a colleague, and I said, why don't we use the scrubs and all of the gear that the surgical suites use because they're not doing elective procedures, right? They're not doing those. And those units, the surgical suites, all those nurses are given scrubs from the hospital because they have to be sterilized. They have to be clean. They have to be a clean environment. So guess who washes them? A big laundry service that sterilizes them and cleans them. So these nurses come to work in their regular clothes. There's a locker room and they change into surgical scrubs while in the unit. That goes for doctors, nurse practitioners, medical students rounding with a group. Doesn't matter. They're all going to wear surgical scrubs for most hospitals. So what is that? If they're not doing procedures, all of these COVID units should be using surgical scrubs because then we're not bringing this home to our families. And I say we because I'm putting myself in there and I'm not lying. I am not taking care of COVID patients. So that's a little unfair of me to say. But we as medical professionals are not bringing this home if the patient, the people who are taking care of COVID patients are going to be wearing surgical scrubs that are being washed and laundered and sterilized by the hospital. Come on. It's pretty simple stuff here. You know, there's showers and lockers. Those would have been very easy for these hospitals to facilitate creating in a break room somewhere. I mean, you can 
put a tent out front and you can modify a whole bunch of rooms and you can request vents, but none, not one hospital requested, how do we protect our nurses? How do we care for our medical professionals that are caring for these patients? That question wasn't asked, and it's very sad that it wasn't asked. Um, I really don't know how to reconcile that in my brain, but it wasn't, so what do you do? Well, let's see, moving forward, let's see, we've got um, the standalone ERs, right? So I don't know if you guys are familiar, we have them out here in the West, and I haven't been to any hospitals out East or any areas out East, but they're developing what we call standalone emergency rooms. And these are really just overgrown uh, quick cares that have a couple overnight beds available in them. Are they right for society, for what we're doing as a hospital? So in this pandemic, let's say, and you got sick and you wanted to get tested or you wanted to get, you know, you go to the emergency room because you're sick. These little facilities weren't taking care of COVID patients. It was the major hospitals. These small facilities are feeder units for big hospitals. So they set up a small unit miles away from the major hospital, and then they bring in all their heart disease, STEMIs, you know, COVID patients, whatever, they transfer them to the big hospital. You don't keep them overnight in the little hospital. So is it fair to call that an ER? That's an emergency room. When an average person, the average citizen in the United States, thinks of emergency room, they think of a place that can care for all of your medical needs. These standalone ERs, these small ERs, cannot take you to the cath lab because they don't have a cath lab. They cannot take you to a neurosurgical suite. Why? Because they don't have one. They have to transfer you. So patient care is delayed. In fact, in one of our hospitals, if they call the STEMI from the outside ER, the small ER, guess what? If they call the STEMI from the outside ER, we're in trouble because now all of a sudden they've got a 20, 30 minute window. So my door to balloon time is extended significantly and I will not meet criteria. And if they're calling the STEMI at the other facility and I have a 30 minute or if the traffic's bad, a 40 minute delay getting my patient to the main hospital and I can't meet my door to balloon time, whose fault is that? Does it go against the practitioner that's actually, you know, providing service or does it go against the facility? I don't know. It's pretty bad. So these standalone ERs might have been really good to utilize during this COVID situation and make them non-COVID units. Make those facilities to see the walking sick, the stereotypical abdominal pains and the back pains and the blah, blah, blah. All of the you know ESI level fours and fives that are not coming in to the hospital. If your city had those units, and if your city told the general public that if you are sick and you're afraid to come to the hospital, come to these facilities, they are not seeing COVID patients. And a big sign out front, if you have a fever, temperature, and this is not a COVID unit, this is not treating COVID patients. 
we're going to take all of the other patients. Now you don't have the empty ERs in the rest of the country. You've got empty ERs because no one's coming in. New York is the exception. Detroit, still a little exception. Washington State, exception. But in here in Nevada, they're not full. Our ERs are not full of people. And why? It's because people are afraid to come into the ER. So if we had made those small facilities able to care for the non-acute injuries and the non-emergent issues, we're not going to get slammed on the back end. I believe we're going to get an onslaught of these patients hit the ERs the minute the governor or whoever is in charge says, well, open for business. You can go about your day and start moving around the country. Now, they're doing it slowly here. They're doing it slowly across the country. But the minute that said, I believe these people who've been waiting for this COVID-19 issue to go away are going to show up in large numbers and overwhelm the hospitals. Not in a way that COVID would have, because COVID patients may have been intubated, sedated, and kept in an ICU and stayed for days on end. But what's going to happen, I believe, and we'll know in a couple weeks, is that the ERs are going to be back to full-fledged care and have had a lull, but the full-fledged care is going to be tenfold or fivefold from what it normally would be. So instead of seeing 1,000 or 1,500 patients a day, you're going to see three to 6,000 patients, you know, in the same time frame, all complaining of small issues, but a small issue, even if it's a upper respiratory infection that requires a, you know, an assessment from the triage nurse, they need to get signed into the hospital. The patient needs to get seen by the practitioner, whether it be a nurse practitioner or a PA or a doctor, they need to have a consult. They need to get charted on, they need to get a prescription written up, they need to have a second set of vitals taken, and they need to be discharged. That's not a fast process, even at the fastest time. It's an hour process. And you're going to see more of those patients coming in. I think we missed a really good opportunity to utilize a facility that's kind of a sketchy facility to begin with, when it comes to being called an ER, and we could have very easily turned those units into non-COVID treating facilities to make sure we continued to care for our sick patients. But what do I know? I'm just a goofy nurse practitioner. So another question I have is that in towns with multiple hospitals, like we have nine hospitals or something, you know, would it have been advantageous for smaller communities to cohort COVID patients in a particular hospital and force that hospital to be the COVID hospital? So let's say you didn't have these standalone ERs like we have and you're in a smaller area. Now, I understand in rural communities, this isn't going to work. There's one hospital servicing thousands of square miles. I mean, Wyoming, for instance, you go, you know, Carbon County Hospital services hundreds, if not thousands of square miles of the whole area. So you can't close that hospital. But in Houston, 
let's say, or another major city, pick one. What if a couple of the major hospitals were the ones that dedicated their focus to COVID patients? Now you have other facilities bringing together their N95s, PPE, dedicating it to this hospital, to this unit that's going to see COVID patients. Other hospitals would operate as normal and not see COVID patients. Now, this would have had to have happened in transition while in flux, because what were we told initially by Fauci and all of the powers that be? Millions of people will die. All your respirators and ventilators and every piece of equipment you have will be utilized. Hospitals will be full. People will be dead. It's drama, crazy, trouble. You know what? Early on, that may have been the case, but they've actually shown that the decimal place was wrong in some of the calculations, so the numbers are not accurate. Now that we know the numbers are not accurate, and we've known that for months, could we have not made adjustments? Now, there's a billing issue with this because we all have seen the documents that show hospitals are getting paid more if the patient is diagnosed as COVID-19. Medicare and Medicaid, I think, is sent $13,000 for treatment of a COVID-19 patient. And that's not including intubation or ICU admission. That jumps the number up significantly, three times as much. So my point is that if we had made that mandate, there would have been an issue amongst hospitals, ironically, fighting for COVID patients. Not fighting to help the nursing staff or the doctors be safe in treating them. They would have fought for the patient because they get more money. These are run by these are run by businessmen. These are businesses. These are not, and this is going to be important later. Know that the hospital is a business. Even a nonprofit hospital is a business. It is there to make money. So those business managers, those business people would have been fighting to take all the COVID patients they could because they're not on the front lines. They don't have to put up with the drama of not having the right equipment, right PPE, enough ventilators. They would just take as many as they could and fill the facility. Now, I think that might have been advantageous for a lot of our hospitals. We have hospitals that are owned by the same group. So one hospital corporation near Hospital Corporations of America, the largest in the country, owns thousands of facilities throughout the country. They own three hospitals here in town. Could they have cohorted all of their patients in their three hospitals, which was never more than their largest hospitals ICUs could have taken at any one time. So all three hospitals never had in them enough patients to fill one hospital's There's multiple ICUs at one hospital here. There's a neuro ICU, a trauma ICU, a cardiac ICU, a medical ICU. Then there's kind of spread throughout the facility. So there's multiple beds. But not at one time was there enough patients from all three hospitals to fill the biggest hospital's, you know, area. But they shut down elective procedures at all three hospitals. So cardiac caths, any abdominal surgeries, um, just any elective procedure, outpatient procedure that's done that makes money, that bills, that pays the facility was suspended 
because of COVID-19 at all facilities. I think these hospitals missed a great opportunity to cohort their COVID patients in a main unit, have created and designed one unit to house all of the COVID patients and then treat them at that facility, have specialized teams that treat patients at that facility and not have this random, I mean, you would have had to transport the patient. Oh, well, you transport them. Point is, is they could have had it done, but they didn't. They missed a great opportunity. Um, and I don't know what you guys think about stuff across the country. Email me, you know, go on to go on a website, email me, tell me what you think. Um, medicallyunbiased.com and, and I'll address it next time we talk. I'll, uh, I'll bring up what you've emailed me because I think these are things that moving forward, this is going to happen again. Something like this pandemic is going to happen again. And if we are not as a society, as a medical institution, if we are not prepared for what's coming, because we haven't been in the past, we've been told to be, but we haven't been. Well, we as medical professionals have relied on the business people to ensure that we're protected. We did not make it a point to protect ourselves. We didn't advocate for ourselves. Earlier, I talked about how nurses, we don't rest. We don't take care of ourselves. Us medical professionals didn't have the proper PPE. We weren't on oversight committee making sure that the hospital had enough of PPE required to care for this situation. We didn't do that. We need to be involved in that because if this stuff happens, these are the kind of solutions that we need to be thinking about moving forward. We need to be protecting the medical staff caring for these patients. If we're not, we're, we might as well just not even care. Might as well just take it and deal with whatever they send us and be like, um, thanks for the job. I really appreciate it. Please, uh, if you can give me some sort of mask someday, maybe please. Yeah, that just sounds stupid. Um, so I have a friend who made a post on Facebook and I won't name her here, but she wrote one of the most amazing posts and she's been caring for a group of COVID patients. She's that's what she, you know, she's an ICU nurse. She's an amazing ICU nurse. Um, and years ago when I worked with her, uh, I have to say I learned a lot from her at the bedside. She's just awesome people. Um, and she put this post up and I want to read it because it's pretty important. She said, yesterday was my first day off after three days at work. I thought I would do so many things, but instead I slept about 15 hours. My exhaustion didn't just come from my work, which to be honest, seemed like an insurmountable battle against death all three days. It comes from witnessing, witnessing injustices that cannot continue. She said, pregnant nurses are forced to work with COVID patients. We exempt pregnant nurses as a community from assignments like this normally. It's like a pregnant nurse has, does not take care of TB patients, meningitis patients, patients with shingles. So why are they being forced to work with COVID patients? Why is the employer behaving so poorly instead of protecting the most valuable resources and unborn children? Um, why is a young transporter told by middle management to walk into a COVID patient's room 
without an N95 when the doctor and nurses are wearing N95s and protective gear? Is his or her life less valuable in the eyes of management? Now, if you don't know, a transporter is somebody who physically pushes a bed, a gurney, or equipment from a room to treatment area. So if a patient needs to have a CT, this person with the physical motoring that pushes the gurney and the equipment while the nurse manages the patient and any of the equipment, respiratory therapy, if they go along, manages the ventilator, oxygen. So this person's job is to physically be at the head of the bed near the patient, moving them around. So why would they not also be given PPE? That just seems unrational, irrational. Um, she goes on. She says, why are our cleaning crews not being given proper education and protection? Fair question. Why are members of leadership asking nurses to avoid the break rooms when taking care of COVID patients? So they're making them where they taking breaks. I don't understand. I need to ask her. I don't know where they're taking breaks. So she says the PPE not enough to protect everyone. So they're not allowed to take breaks anymore in the break room. So why are exposed employees not being tested and given priority in care? She says, imagine the fear of a known exposure, but no support from your employer. Is there a plan? No, there obviously is no plan. I'm sorry. Um, why are our leaders making decisions from home, teleconferencing and leading through email when they're asking us to just make do with what we have? She goes on and she says that the CEO told her he would turn a patient with her using just a surgical mask as he continued to state what that he was certain a plain mask was sufficient for a rule out case of COVID-19. She adds, I've yet to see him on my unit. He has sent me a message through email and he will not be coming into the hospital. Which is hilariously sick if it wasn't so sad. Um, she says, why are we having to fight when we're caring for sick under such huge amounts of stress? She said she's tired of fighting. Now, this is a woman who's strong. I mean, super strong. I admire her her gumption, her gall, her ability. She's one of the smartest people I know. Um, she says, I wish I could stay home, hug my kids, her husband, her mom, her sister, and her dad, instead of keeping her distance. Her kids are literally staying at a family member's house. She has not seen her family physically touch them or hug them in two months because she takes care of COVID patients and she has a son who's, you know, compromised, immunocompromised. She does not want to get her family sick. So her family is staying with her, her immediate family is staying with, you know, her sister. And this is what's her life so that she can care for these patients. And the hospital doesn't care. They just flat don't care. Um, she, she says when her respiratory therapy teammates work side by side um, nurses were denied PPE by middle management. So the respiratory therapists who do the aerosolized procedures of the intubations on patients were denied 
PPE by this facility. Wow. Um, she says that the nurses stood with them. Um, and when they were told not to wear N95 masks when patients were sus- only suspected to have COVID-19, but only wear them once they tested positive, the nurses stood tall and they said, no, we're going to wear N95 masks. So management acquiesced to visitation uh, to isolation areas, endangering the safety of staff as well as family members. The staff stood up and fought that as well. But why do they have to fight these decisions? These are really simple things that need to be done to protect people. Why is she having to fight with upper management in such a situation? Um, she says as healthcare workers, we're used to serving those, serving others. Um, we always just make do frequently short-staffed, short of supplies. You ever heard a nurse get a lunch break? That's the joke. That's one of the running jokes is that nurses don't get breaks. And she mentions that here. She goes, we work without breaks. Um, we don't, we don't fight. We just function within the dysfunction. They, uh, work out of their comfort zone a lot of times. And management's aware of that. I think management's aware that nurses are more than willing to suck it up and not have, um, so this is another issue. This is another thing that just says we need to be in charge. We as medical providers need to be the ones actually giving the orders for the hospital or being part of the orders given, not a business person because they're not making, they're not making rational decisions. Um, so that's my whole port point about, uh, the hospitals and nurses and, no one working together. It's really upsetting to me. I, uh, I wish I could say that there was, you know, better options, but I don't know. Until we get some of these CEOs out of the areas and out of the, out of control, we're going to continue to have this problem or nurses are going to have to stand up. Nurses and doctors together are going to have to stand up and fight this. Um, just either say, look, I'm not showing up to work unless we're in control of the equipment. It's really funny because we're in control of, you know, the all of the intubation equipment and all the drugs, the drug management. It's in our hands. It's in, you know, the CEO couldn't get into the, you know, OmniCell or the whatever system you use to get your drugs. The CEO couldn't get in there and get those drugs. CEO couldn't intubate a dying patient. The CEO couldn't suture a wound. So why are they in control of protecting us when they're not doing it? It's a problem, people. It's not good. So on to the next thing here. I've been looking at uh, other facilities, other other places, other countries. And India is really being talked about by other people about how they have so many less deaths. They have less deaths than um, the U.S. More people right? But less deaths. So why do they have less deaths? Um, and BBC News posted an article on the 28th of April about this. And they talk about the mystery behind India's lower death rates. And after all of these things, it boils down to India is really horrible about keeping records. So 
80%, they say 80% of deaths in India still happen at home, including deaths from infections like malaria and pneumonia. Um, sudden deaths, coronary artery disease or heart attacks, um, they happen at home. People die all the time at home. So they're not testing. They're not testing these people to see if it was COVID related. Um, so it's really weird because the of the 850 million Indians in India that use mobile phones, they um, probably were told to stay in their homes, don't come out, don't do anything. Um, and all of a sudden they're dying in their home and it's not abnormal for them. Um, and only 22% of deaths in India have any medical determination on it. So a doctor only sees about 22% of all the deaths there. So yeah, we were, you know, people were talking about how India is doing so well and they're not, they're not doing well. You can't say that because we're not actually counting. We don't know the numbers from India. So the tracking of deaths and the tracking of COVID-19 in India is not accurate. So if the numbers aren't accurate, you can't use it to compare. It's no longer part of the study, as far as I'm concerned. It needs to be thrown out. Um, a very interesting thing I read, though, says that we have three strains of COVID-19. This isn't being talked about much, um, but the it's called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. It's uh, pismpaulnas.org is the website. And the article was published uh, April 28th, 2020. Um, and it was uh, Colin Renfew was the one of the contributing authors. And they show in this uh, sample of genomes from across the globe, they're showing that there's three distinct uh, COVID-19 viruses. Now, the first one, they're calling A, they call them A, B, and C are the differences, right? So the A virus is the most like the original one that came from a bat. Now, we're not going to talk right now about whether it came from a lab or not. And so let's just go, you know, the type A strain is closest to the coronavirus found in bats and pangolins, whatever a pangolin is. I don't know what that animal is. Um, but that's what they consider the root of the outbreak, what started in China. The, the B type virus is a variation of the first coronavirus that was in Wuhan. Um, but it's derived from type A, but there was two mutations of the virus to become B. And ironically, that one was the one that's most virulent in China. Um, type A wasn't as virulent in China as we find that type B seems to have been. Now, type C came from type B. It was one mutation, one mutation different um, from its B parent. So the C type went to Europe through Singapore, they figure. Um, the B type mutated slowly, um, but then it mutated really fast once it got out of China. And they're saying that there's um, 
two different clusters in the US. We got type A and type B. So the type A came from China and that entered in California and Washington State. The type B virus that we have, I guess, came into New York. Now, why are we not hearing about this? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the treatment is the same. Maybe the symptoms are the same. But it is freaking weird to look at this and there's nobody talking about it. I say nobody. No one in my circle seems to be talking about it. Yet this was all done from um, 29,000 samples of people, different patients um, from around the world. Uh, all done through the National Academy of Sciences here in the U.S. of A. And we're not talking about it. Do you know who first talked about this? The Daily Wire. The Daily or DailyMail.com talked about this. They, pub- they were the one, first ones to publish about it on April 10th. Um, this first was posted on... Uh, public, it was published, written on March 30th and published April 8th. So the next day, it was picked up by the Daily Wire. It wasn't picked up by, you know, New York Times. It wasn't picked up by um, social media. It's kind of weird. So why? Um, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with anything. But it is funny that they're saying that the type A virus was not very prevalent in Asians, yet the type B mutation was much more prevalent in Asians and so maybe that's why New York is seeing such a different response to the virus because they're treating type B virus, not type A or C. Um, hmm. I think that requires more looking into. Um, it's above my ability. I don't have a lab and I don't have all the equipment that's needed to do that, but I can ask the question and I can say, if someone else has seen the information, maybe we as a group of medical professionals should start asking some questions. I don't know. So this, if this pandemic has shown us anything, when it comes to mask design, we're really getting screwed, man. There's some pretty cool inventions pretty pretty cool homegrown mask sizes and styles and i'm not talking about the wackadoodle ones where it's some person wrapping a bandana around, like they're a bandito wrapping a bandana around their face i'm talking some of these custom sewn really well done masks that people have invented and created that you know look comfortable to wear actually and they're not a small little taco pouch around your face or a round cup. I mean, I think 3M should employ some of these people in their design and technical department because some of these people who have sewn some masks have some pretty cool designs out there. Now, the jury is out on whether or not it's beneficial or protects these people or does anything for them when they're in Costco. But hey, uh, if you got the right mask, maybe you'll look good and become a new fashion statement. Who knows? Um, so I talked last week about the hero worship BS. And 
it continues. They're like, oh, the nurses and the doctors are superheroes. Well, guess what? Superheroes have the shit they need to fight. Like Superman can fly. Spider-Man can shoot webs. He's got all the stuff he needs. He's strong. You know, I'm not a superhero knowledgeable person, but I'm just saying these guys have the weapons and the skills. We have all the skills, but the we have to go to the big bad manager to get our weapons. They're locked away. And then the manager says, no, we don't have any N95s for you. So go fight without them. Well, of course, the if you're going to compare us to fucking superheroes, you better actually give us the stuff we need. So as far as I'm concerned, no, not superheroes. Again, I'm going to double down on my statement. Most nurses, most nurses do not want to be called heroes. We don't want a free McDonald's thing. We don't want free. We want the right equipment. We want the proper training. We want the proper people by our side that can help us treat patients. We are there to treat patients. I'm not there to get free donuts and free bagels and pat my break my arm, patting myself on the back for the great job I did. The true ner- the nurses that know and the doctors that do this daily, that's what they want. They want to be treated like the professionals they are. Stop handing us cookies and stuff to make us feel better. It's very upsetting. Um, it's also shown us that COVID-19 has also shown us that the medical system is broken. We've been operating pretty well for the last 20 years on the system that we have. It's changed a little over the last 20 years. We went from paper charting to digital charting and pick your charting system. They all suck in some way, shape, or form. Some people really love Epic. Some people really love others. No one loves Meditech, but whatever. The point here is that the system is actually horribly broken. I like to kind of equate it to a divorce, right? So, or maybe an abusive relationship. We've been in an abusive relationship, but we know how to function within it. We, you know, don't want to be in the abusive relationship, but we're really unsure of what else lies ahead. So we continue. We continue to function in the abusive relationship and in this dysfunctional world because we understand the parameters. Well, COVID-19 has pulled back those parameters and we have been exposed and now we're getting abused and we're getting beaten, punched and hit and we're not going to take it anymore. Now, do I think that we're going to be the abused spouse that shoot? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, you know, destroy that, but we will walk away. We need to walk away. This abuse cannot continue. So I plead with you, if you are being told you can't wear masks or you're being told you're not allowed to have this or that, or you're being told that you, you know, that your patients are need, you need to suffer with your patients and you just need to suck it up. You probably should question why you're working there um, and change. That's not good. But, uh, the system's been broken for a while anyway. We just didn't know it. And COVID-19 has shown us that it is. So these doctors, two doctors from California brought out a video. And, 
Oh my God, the internet lit up. It went crazy. Right-wing conservatives were saying, look at how great these guys are. Look at what they're doing for society. They're really fighting for us. And the left-wing, you know, liberal media said, these people are idiots. Oh my God, how stupid. They want to kill people just because they have open a run a business? They want to kill people? That was the division. The division had nothing to do with their data. Nothing. At all. Read anybody's argument on the internet. When you read the arguments, when you read the data, what is it? Again, we're going to look at this unbiased. I'm not looking at it from a Republican point of view or a liberal point of view. I'm looking at this from the data. So what's true? These two doctors do own a business. Pretty good sized business from what I gather. And they've had to either let people go or they have to furlough paid, you know, employees because their patient volume is low. True. But guess what? The hospital, remember I said earlier, the hospital is also a business. So to say that these guys are operating a business, but the doctors in the hospital, aren't that's a bunch of crap. Because the hospital's a business. The hospital's there to make money and pay people and employ thousands of employees to pay them money. They don't do it out of their desire to, you know, give back to the community. You know, there's no philanthropist that's spending $2 million a year, $10 million or $100 million a year, whatever it takes to run that facility. They're not doing it. They're giving to some hospitals. I mean, there's philanthropy and there's some hospitals that get that. And I'm glad for that. There's cancer institutes, children's hospitals, you know, Shriners, there's a lot of places, you know, that get a lot of money, but not every ho- every hospital otherwise is a business. They're running as a business. So when we talk about these two doctors from California that were, went on in all of the different media outlets, either loved them or hated them based on their own personal confirmation bias, um, these two gentlemen said it's no worse than the flu. Their numbers that they tested were no worse than the flu. And maybe in their area, that's true. That very well could be. And they even said that in the video. If you listen to the video, they talk about how they're talking about numbers from their area. They're not talking about numbers from New York. Now, when you look at the CDC data on deaths, the highest point we had was in a week in April where 12,500 people died from COVID-19 compared to 576 people that died from the flu. So that week, I would say COVID-19 was much more, you know, prevalent in the death dealing than flu. However, when you look at numbers across the board, it's very easy to extrapolate that the amount of people who've been exposed versus the amount of deaths doesn't necessarily mean that we are need to continue what we've been doing because that was a couple of weeks in April. So did we slow the curve? Is there drop the curve? Is it what they were expecting us to do? Maybe. Maybe this unprecedented response to a pandemic 
has actually done what it's supposed to do. And we're all just complaining because now we want to leave our houses. We've been stuck with our kids yelling at us all the time, teaching them schoolwork. God bless you teachers, by the way. Um, yeah, so we, we're all shuttered in and we want to get out and we want to do something different. So maybe that's why. Uh, maybe the people who are thinking, no, it's going to kill everybody, haven't seen the newest data because they're still working off of the old data. I'm giving everyone the benefit of the doubt here. I'm not saying that anyone wants people to die, nor do I think that people don't believe it, even though there are people who don't believe this exists, but whatever. Um, so these two doctors, their conversation, I think is a rational one to have. They would not be good doctors if they weren't asking questions. Doctors are not trained monkeys. They're not out doing what they're told. They get training. They learn the basics. They learn the information, just like a nurse practitioner does. We learn the information and we go out and we treat patients. And then our ideologies and our methods and the things we see and the studies we read shape and change our thought process moving forward. So these guys were looking at the data they have and they were asking questions. There's nothing wrong with that. Even if they own a business, if they own a huge business, if it's failing, doesn't mean they're wrong for asking. And they weren't, you know, they weren't being rude. They weren't demanding. They weren't arresting you because you did you were on a surfboard in California. No, they were just saying, hey, what we have, the data we have compared to what we thought it was going to be is different. Let's reassess. In the medical community, we do that, right? So troubleshooting in the medical community is a little different than troubleshooting in the rest of the world. Let me explain. So if you have a light bulb go out in your house, right? So light bulb goes out on your ceiling. What's the first thing you do? You grab another light bulb. Must be the light bulb. Turn, put a new light bulb in. What if the light doesn't come back on? Now what do you do? Go to the switch, go to the breaker panel. Something isn't right. Maybe you got to call an electrician. Maybe a mouse ate the wire and cut the wire in half. And who knows? Maybe there's no power to the house. There's really only a couple things that can be wrong. Let's say four or five things that can be wrong with that light bulb not working. Maybe you got a bad light bulb in the new pack and everything else is fine. You've got to put a new light bulb in again. So at the end of the day, there's a finite amount of things that can make that light bulb work. Medical troubleshooting is different. We start with most lethal, not how many there are. We just look at lethality early on. So you come in the hospital and you have chest pain and shortness of breath. Well, you're going to get a bunch of labs. You're going to get an EKG. You're going to get a chest x-ray. It's just going to happen. Why are we doing that? We're looking at lethal problems. Is this a heart attack? Is this, you know, a major lung issue? Something's not right. Why aren't they breathing properly? What's going on? Are the lab values good? Is there a major issue? You know, do they have enough blood in their body? Maybe it's not a heart attack. Maybe they, their lungs are fine, but they're out of blood. Their hemoglobin is two and or four and they're white as a ghost and they can't carry oxygen to the cells. So that's why they're short of breath. Ergo, that's not a lung problem or a heart problem. It's a bleeding issue and they're internally bleeding and we need to find out where. So 
We do all these tests to make these determinations. But what if it's none of that? That doesn't mean that we're out of options. In fact, the list just gets longer, right? So when we're going down the line, now we have a longer list of of things to worry about. So at the end of the day, (laughs) when we're asking questions or when these doctors are asking questions, they're not wrong to ask them. And we as a society need to appreciate the fact that they're asking them because our things or things change. Our ideas and our knowledge about the disease has changed since day one. I don't think China was honest with us. I really don't believe that. I mean, we have some info from them and we've relied on it. But a lot of the stuff we relied on hasn't bore out to be true. So now we're having to do research on our own. And these doctors did their own research, although a small subset of patients across the board, they did 5,000 tests. Do you guys know that you take drugs that have been approved by the FDA on smaller amounts of tests than that? Like less people in the in the test? So yeah, there's a, a pretty good size group for them, 5,000 people. And they found that you know, their numbers didn't jive with what the federal government was making happen. So they have the right to ask the question and we need to back them up with their question. They weren't saying that they're right. They were saying, this is what I've seen. If you have different data, show it to me and explain it to me. Nothing wrong with that. If they were writing a published, you know, something to be published in a journal and they wrote an actual study about that and extrapolated all the data, other physicians and other scientists would look at that, try and replicate it, replicate their data, and be able to see if they can do it. And if they could, guess what? It'd get published. And then all of a sudden, it wouldn't be these two jerk doctors talking about how the economy's crushing their business. It would be, look at this really intelligent information in this study. It's just crap. This stuff's happening so fast and things are changing so quickly, we don't have time to always publish the study. We need to have an open dialogue and discussion about what's going on if we want to be smarter and move forward in a better, more efficient manner. Um, Did you guys know that hospitals are empty in Canada as well? It's not just here. Like We like to say, oh, America is the center of the world. Well, we kind of think we are a lot of the times, but we're not all the time. So Canada posted on their uh, CTV news uh, website, they posted an article uh, the 29th of April that says, all of our rooms are empty. Hospitals and ERs are vacant. Now, what's funny about that is that Canada doesn't pay. They don't, you don't pay to go to the hospital in Canada. It's all covered by national health care. We talked last week that STEMIs are down 80% across the board. And they've seen Canada mentions a 30 to 40% drop in patients in most ERs in Canada. They're empty. They don't have COVID patients. They're not even knowing sick patients up there. So everyone's afraid of coronavirus. And they actually, so the emergency department at South Lake. Um, they actually posted a video on YouTube begging people to come in, not begging, but advertising that they're safe, that it's not 
as bad as it everyone says it is. It's not, don't believe the hype. Come to us, we'll help you. We'll still see you. We're still open for business for regular patients, which is, you know, kind of funny that a hospital is normally full from a country that doesn't pay for their medical services needs to say, hey, come in, <laughs> you know, it's, we're okay. You're okay to do it. Um, Ontario's health minister mentioned that so these won't go down as COVID patients by this. So Ontario's health minister says that 35 people died waiting for cardiac surgery. And that number is going to increase as surgeries are delayed because of COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So now do those people that died waiting for cardiac surgery go down as cardiac deaths or COVID deaths? That's the question I have. Because they didn't have COVID-19, so but they were killed because of COVID-19. So COVID-19 killed them indirectly, but it won't go down as a COVID death. See, I think the numbers on that would be higher if we could include those patients that we could have helped, but we didn't because they were waiting for COVID-19 to be over. Um, yeah. So the case fatality rate versus the in infection fatality rate um i'll talk about that next time i'll bring that because think about this a minute the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate is a little different so you need to we talked about that last time a little bit we'll talk about it next time again um the prevalence of the information um it's very indicative of the spanish flu um which 100 years ago was a thing so we'll talk about that next time. Um, also, the WHO timeline compared with our timeline doesn't correlate. That's a problem. Um, Sweden didn't lock down. And uh, early on, the WHO on their timeline said, Sweden's horrible. They need to lock down. They're going to kill people. Millions will die. Why would they do this? Now, all of a sudden... WHO puts out a video um, of one of their doctors talking about how Sweden is a model of how to treat this virus and how we, as, a, as most countries, need to move forward from here. So wait, Sweden was the evil stepchild for not locking down and just telling, rationally telling their elderly and their sick to shelter in place, wear masks if you can, you know, don't go outside if you don't need to. They were horrible, horrible human beings. They're going to kill everybody. Now they're the model. See, things are changing, people. Every day things are changing. Now, I don't know if anyone's aware of this or not, but Dr. Fauci, he actually co-authored a paper the about COVID-19 that was published March 26th in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um... He talks about and compares this COVID-19 with the first SARS in 2002 and MERS in 2012. Um, and he explains why this particular COVID outbreak has given a little bit of challenge to those people. Now, he's a co-author. He's one of three authors on this. Um, it was Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Lane, and Dr. Redfield were the three 
the three editors, um, or the three authors on this. Now, in this article, Fauci mentions that he doesn't believe at this time, when this was posted, that the death rate is going to be worse than the flu. He actually compares it to the, you know, H1N1 flu. So if that's the case, why this change and why did everything get modified to where we're going to kill a million people? Like, I don't understand when that change happened. We were just went from, and this article wasn't written in a day. So you got to remember this was written, submitted, um, and then published on March 26th. It was probably, um, it says the editorial was published February 28th, even though the document says March 26th. So the editor's not. So this initially came out in February, meaning that they wrote this based on the Chinese data from the initial outbreak in China in January. I can only assume that because it wasn't really considered to be here in the U.S. at the time. And we had no known cases, even though arguably there's a bunch of questions about that. But right now, at the time, we didn't have any known cases. He says in this paper that um, if one assumes that the number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic cases is several times higher than the number of reported cases, the case fatality rate may be considerably less than 1%. Um, it also suggests that the consequences of COVID-19 may ultimately be more akin to a severe seasonal flu or even a pandemic flu, not the 9 and 10% and 30% mortality rates that were thrown around at the time. So this is ironic that this was written by Fauci or co-authored by Fauci, Dr. Fauci, in February, figure it started, the paper started in maybe, you know, January or whatever, and was written and published and submitted in February, finally published in March. But all of the... <laughs> All of the data changed and now we had to lock everyone down and it's going to kill millions. I just don't... Someone made a critical mistake here. Now, did they make a mistake because they saved our lives? Maybe, I don't know. I think they made a mistake by overestimating the virulence of this. That doesn't mean that this disease doesn't have its own set of problems. And we'll talk about that next time. Because this... This virus is a problem. This virus, we're talking about the death rates, and everyone talks about the death rates, right? We could talk about that all day. But that's not the only issue. There's strokes. People are having major pulmonary embolism and blood clots. Uh, They're having TIAs and ongoing strokes, memory problems. Um, So we need to look at other issues related to COVID-19, And I'm questioning down the road, how is this going to affect those that have survived? I just read an article. I got to pull it up. I'll get it for our next time we talk about how the military is going to make it so that if you've had COVID-19, you cannot, it's going to be a thing that eliminates you from being able to join the military. So what do they know that we don't know? Why, why is that the case? Because if you've been fine, you got it and you got better, why would that prevent you 
from being in the military. I got to read the article. I got to dig into this and find out. So right now it's speculative, but that was the headline of the article. And I'll, I'll dig into more so I can explain it to you guys when we talk next time. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Um, don't forget to tell your CEOs to shove it if they're not going to give you what you need. And uh, we'll talk again. Thanks. You've been listening to Medically Unbiased. Visit our website at medicallyunbiased.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Listening to this podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship. The Medically Unbiased podcast is for general information purposes only. Thanks for listening.